From the Folger Shakespeare Library, this is Shakespeare Unlimited. I'm Michael Whitmore, the Folger's director. This podcast is called See What I See. For most of us, seeing Shakespeare means experiencing live actors in a theater. But for more than 100 years, Shakespeare's words, plots, settings, and characters have also been brought to life on film. Shakespeare on film has never been like Shakespeare on stage. In the earliest years of the medium, it simply couldn't be. Then, as film matured, directors realized that the medium offered new ways to tell Shakespeare's stories that were impossible to reproduce on stage. Along the way, trends like multiplex theaters, the rise of independent films and teen comedies, and directors from Orson Welles to Laurence Olivier to Julie Taymor and Joss Whedon have reshaped and reimagined Shakespeare. For the past 45 years, Samuel Crowell, professor of English at Ohio University, has been writing and teaching about Shakespeare on film. We brought him here today to offer a broad overview of the subject. He is interviewed by Rebecca Shear. This day is called the Feast of Crispian. He that outlives this day and comes safe home will stand at tiptoe when this day is named and arouse him at the name of Crispian. You've written that the greatest explosion of Anglo-American films based on Shakespeare's plays came out in the last decade of the 20th century. And that's more than we'd seen in something like 100 years. What was it about that period of time that made it so rich in Shakespeare film adaptations? Well, I think uh, it's a mingling of, as always, a work of art and a cultural moment. This young, brash uh, British kid that nobody really had heard of, uh, Kenneth Branagh, uh, had the chutzpah to suggest after um, giving one lead performance and two uh, smaller ones at the Royal Shakespeare Company to found his own little theater company and then to decide he wanted to make a film of Henry V. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers. And he produced a film that caught uh, the world's attention uh, because it was um, surprisingly good. Uh, But at the same moment in uh, America, in Hollywood, it was the beginning of the independent film movement. So the the independent, it it took advantage, these Shakespeare films, of this new movement, as did a lot of other serious films. And as a result, in the 1990s, we not only got 20 or more uh, Shakespeare films in the sense that they weren't just spin-offs, they used Shakespeare's language, but we also got remakes of six, all six Jane Austen novels and new films of about five Henry James novels. You also seem to suggest that the creation of the multiplex is in part responsible for this proliferation of Shakespeare films. Can you talk about that? Sure. Suddenly, you didn't have one downtown theater with one screen where a movie would come and play for a month or so. Now we had places that had 10, 12, 24 screens, and they needed material. Well, you are a rare parrot teacher. A bird of my tongue is better than a beast of yours. I would my horse had the speed of your tongue. But keep your way, God's name, I am done. If we go back to the beginning of Shakespeare on film, do I understand correctly that there were more than 400 silent Shakespeare films? You do. Uh, A great scholar, Robert Hamilton Ball, wrote the first real work of scholarship about Shakespeare on film, and it was on Shakespeare and the silent film. 
And of course, these films, when we talk about 400 films, you got to remember that early silence were one or two reelers. They last anywhere from four to 10 or 12 minutes. Only about 40 of those survive. Um, what's very interesting is that when you get up to a film that is maybe six, seven, eight reels long, so somewhere between 40 and 60 minutes, it's considered a full-length film. And the oldest surviving American film is a Shakespeare film from 1912, and uh, it's of Richard the uh, Richard the Third. Why was Shakespeare so hot back then? Well, once again, I think there are. Um, aesthetic and cultural reasons both. Uh, first of all, Shakespeare's, many of his stories were familiar. Um, many of those stories also dealt with elements of the supernatural, things like fairies or sprites or ghosts, that film and, and its ability to use trick photography um, was seemed a natural medium to explore, uh, giving the audience a, an experience that they could not have in the theater. So uh, Midsummer Night's Dream, or bits of Midsummer Night's Dream, were very popular in the early silent films. So were ghost scenes. So there, there was that element. Then I think, in terms of uh, culture, film was obviously regarded as uh, something at the bottom of the cultural totem pole. And so I think that producers um, got the wise idea that if you could link film with Shakespeare, that that was showing that uh, film belonged or film could be a part of an artistic enterprise that also included Shakespeare. Well, we're talking about the silent era of film, of course, and so much of Shakespeare's power comes from the language. So when you're reading reviews of Shakespeare's films back from that time, what do you find that critics say about the fact that the films have no dialogue? Or does that not even come up? Was, was that a moot point? It's a moot point because they it isn't something that yet can be conjured or I mean that is the form is that the film is silent. So you go in knowing that and you go in without it's sort of interesting that it's when sound does come along that the sort of criticism that you're thinking about erupts in the sense of they don't know what to do with the language or they don't know how to speak it correctly. And of course, the real trick is how you bring the words and the images together. And it took a while for film, once it learned to talk, to be able to do that. Oh, oh, oh. oh come, Kate, come. You must not look so sour. It is my fashion when I see a crab. Here's no crab. Come, Kate, come, sit down. I want to talk a little bit more about the early talkies. Um, when talking pictures came along, like you said, the first big budget Shakespeare films were kind of, they were kind of flat. They were very classically styled. I mean, men in drapey clothing standing around and declaiming, you know, that kind of thing. Can you talk more about that? The, the first uh, experiments were in Hollywood. Um, the, the, Hollywood went, tried to do him, and first it did it with a pair of uh, famous leading actors, a husband and wife team, uh, Douglas Fairbanks and Mary Pickford. The South and all the world have talked to miss her. Father! And these greet so well together that Sunday is our wedding day. I'll see thee hanged on Sunday first. And it has its its moments. Um, and, and then there was the great 1935 Warner Brothers uh, concoction. It was actually put together by a great uh, German director, Max Reinhardt, who actually wanted 
Fred Astaire to play Puck. That was his. Uh, wow. <laughs> that would have been <laughs> wonderful. And he wanted uh, Gable and Cooper for the two young lovers. Anyway, he didn't get them. But um, it at least tries to tell the story cinematically. It, it, and it probably overdoes it because it wants to create spectacle. The fairy man devised not the child of me. His mother was a votress of my order. And for her sake do I rear up her boy. And for her sake I will not part with him. So, um, and then the, I think what killed it uh, was the MGM uh, Romeo and Juliet, which was meant as a, by Irving Thalberg, the great producer, meant as a bouquet for his wife, Norma Shearer, who was a fine Hollywood actress. But he wanted to give her this chance to do Shakespeare. And she was uh, 40, and her Romeo, Leslie Howard, was 42. And this didn't work in close-up. What man art thou that thus be screened in night so stumblest on my counsel? By a name, I know not how to tell thee who I am. You've said that it really took Laurence Olivier to break that code, to crack that code of how to successfully do Shakespeare on the screen. What do you find different in his version of Shakespeare versus what Hollywood was doing? Well, uh, for one thing, uh, as you know if you've seen the film, it all starts in the Globe Theater. Oh, for a muse of fire that would ascend the brightest heaven of invention. A kingdom for a stage, princes to act, and monarchs to behold a swelling scene. And it uses many different forms of, of representation. So we start in the theater, and then we move out from the theater, not into location shooting, but into represent, uh, representational sets. And then we move from those representational sets, finally at the Battle of Agincourt, into on-location landscape shooting. So he begins to, to play with cinema the way Shakespeare plays with theater, in which Shakespeare is always willing to be meta-theatric. Olivier is being meta-cinematic here. In peace, there's nothing so becomes a man as modest stillness and humility. But when the blast of war blows in our ears, then imitate the action of the tiger. And the film comes out at a time and is bright. And he made it in Technicolor because he wants to make a film that is a present to the English at this moment. And it was. I think So I think the cultural moment is important here, too, because it was a film that said Shakespeare and the Elizabethan age is part of what we're fighting for. Now, Laurence Olivier and Orson Welles are seen as the two greatest craftsmen when it comes to adapting Shakespeare to film. I'm curious, where do you come down on Olivier versus Welles? Who, who do you think does it better? Well, I'm an American, and uh, so I, I cast my lot with Welles. Uh, they, they are a remarkable pair because they are so uniquely different. Olivier is a man of the theater. Welles ultimately is a man of um, the cinema. Wells is a true master of film. An Olivier film, to be quite honest, will never be taught in a film history course. A film history course probably cannot ignore two or three, at least, of Wells's films. So if you come at this from the cinema side of things, Wells is your man. If we're talking about these new cinematic directions that Wells is taking, can you give examples from some of his Shakespeare films? Sure. He's always after how the image is evoking images that are significant in the text. And yet our nature 
erring from itself. Aye, there's the point. As to be bold with you, not to affect many proposed matches of her own pliant complexion and degree. One may smell in such a will most rank, foul disproportion. So, uh, well, in, in his Othello, he is always in half-light. He's always in uh, the shadows, moving in and out of it with Iago on the other side of it. That is the whole, the whole issue of black and white, the issue of sort of innocence and, and evil uh, are, are brilliantly expressed just in the quality of the way in which Wells uses light and shadow. And there's a terrific um, moment in the film when Iago has been pouring his poison in Othello's ear and they come in from the battlements and, and uh, Wells gives us a great mirror shot. And once again, the, in the mirror, the, the, they're in half shadow and you get Othello in the shot in the mirror with Iago in the, in the background. And then the, quickly we move to a shot of Desdemona, then back to the shot of the two of them reflected in the mirror. I would I might entreat your honor to scan this thing no further. Leave it to time. Farewell. Leave me, Iago. Sounds like they're doing a lot of the work. Yes. Mm-hmm. Now, there's such an enormous gap in time between the 1930s and the 1970s. Um, there's, there's little or no Shakespeare produced during that time period. Obviously, World War II would partly explain that. But why was there so little in the 1950s and, and most of the 1960s? Well, actually, um, the films are being made in that period. It's when we get to the end of the sort of beginning of the the 60s that we begin to they begin to dwindle away, partly because they haven't made any money. Uh, we taper off because the word is Shakespeare's box office poison, and then Zeffirelli comes along in 1968 and makes a, the blockbuster, the first blockbuster Shakespeare film. And so, um, because that film made a lot of money, it allowed Hollywood to put up some money for a film of Macbeth to be directed by, a, that was directed by Roman Polanski. And when that turned out to be box office poison, they just dropped it. And they dropped it too because the BBC had come along and starting in about 1975 had a 10-year plan of producing all of Shakespeare's plays in television versions and those were all going to be shown in America on PBS. And so the studio um, heads said, what's the point of, uh, of our investing any money in Shakespeare? Those people who want to watch him can see him for free on television. Hmm. When we're talking about this dry spell in America, though, I guess we should point out that globally there was some Shakespeare going on on film. Indeed. And that becomes the sort of that post-war period where you get Akira Kurosawa making his three great Shakespeare films, the most famous being Throne of Blood, his version of Macbeth. But also one of his last two films is a great film based on the King Lear story called Ron. And we get Grigory Kozintsev in Russia making his two great Shakespeare films, A Hamlet in 1964 and A King Lear in 1971. Um, we get a couple of films in Germany. We get one in... France. And if we fast forward to the end of the 20th century, you include films like Ten Things I Hate About You in the stretch of Shakespeare-related spin-offs that came out then. 
I'm wondering, in your opinion, what is it that makes these films Shakespeare films? I mean, if someone makes a movie about a guy who's trying to make another guy take out a girl so that he can date the girl's sister, why is that considered a Shakespeare spinoff? I mean, just because Shakespeare wrote a play with more or less the same plot 400 years ago, how much of this is Shakespeare, would you say, I guess, and how much of it is is marketing? Oh, no, it's some director who wants to do this. It's a director's <laughs> program. Um, uh, it's like Clueless and Emma. Right, uh, I mean, right. You, you can go see Clueless and not have any idea the, what the resonance is with Jane Austen's Emma, but believe me, the woman who made that film sure does. And so that's where this comes from. It's a form of how can we, what, meld Shakespeare, minus the language, into into film form, and so you you get... Uh, Shakespeare films that are sci-fi films. You get Shakespeare films that are westerns. Uh, now, part of this is, um, I mean, it's always a director who, where this kind of project starts because they're interested in doing it, but then they're also trying to find an audience. We were talking about Kenneth Branagh earlier, and I'm wondering why was he so much more successful than Trevor Nunn or someone like Julie Taymor in bringing Shakespeare to the screen? Well, people might quarrel with that assessment, but I think uh, he was in the sense that, particularly in Much Ado About Nothing, he was willing to go all the way to appeal to that uh, 12 to 24-year-old audience. He was willing to be, as my own students say, cheesy. Come hither, Leonardo. What was it you told me of today? That your niece, Beatrice, was in love with Signor Benedict? I did never think that lady would have loved any man. The, the film had energy. It had life. It had a kind of an appeal. Now, the appeal was not meant to be to a 55-year-old distinguished Shakespeare scholar. Uh, as a great young French scholar who became attracted to Shakespeare because of Breno's Henry V, said about Much Ado About Nothing in that early scene when the boys are all jumping in the, uh, in the bath and the girls are taking a shower as they get... Uh, ready to meet for a big house party, that Branagh says he was clearly shaking the dust out of Shakespeare. Uh, probably the fact that, that, you know, Trevor Nunn has spent his life directing Shakespeare in the theater held him back from going at a Twelfth Night, let's say, in a similar vein. I think what he does in Twelfth Night is is very nice, but you, he turns it into something out of Chekhov, which is great for me, but um, th that isn't going to appeal to the 17 or 18-year-old kid moviegoer. And Julie Taymor, what's your take on that? Yeah, Taymor. I like her work, and but boy, Titus Andronicus would be a hard sell anywhere. <laughs> Um, I, I can't tell you why The Tempest didn't get a better response. I'm, uh, I've just been talking about it at a Shakespeare conference, and I, I was surprised how many Shakespeareans in the room uh, were, were not pleased with the translation of Prospero into Prospero, although many of them were women, or with Mirren's performance. I, I, I find it uh, stunning, and, and I was much more humanly involved in Prospero's struggle with uh, her newfound freedom than I ever have been by a Prospero in the theater. But um, we all have, we all go to the movies and we all um, have our own opinions, I guess. Going back to Much Ado About Nothing, what would you say is worth talking about with regard to the most recent production, the one done by Joss Whedon? Uh-huh. Here's an example of somebody taking the 
$500 million that the Avengers made and taking a piece of it and wanting to make a Shakespeare film. It's a director who wants to do this. What I didn't uh, respond to, because um, I'm, I'm now not a part of that generation, is that the audiences that I first watched the film with were laughing early on because they knew all of the characters, all the actors in, the, in that film are a part of Whedon's television empire. Oh, God, sir. I cannot endure my lady tongue. There's a kind of merry war between Signor Benedict and her. They never meet, but there's a skirmish of wit between them. So they knew them all, and they were taking a great delight in seeing them do Shakespeare that just wasn't available for me because in many cases I'd never seen any of them before, and in some cases I was not as uh, initially drawn to their performances as I have, I must confess, been on subsequent viewings. But what I'm taking away from this is this movie might not be in your top ten of Shakespeare films? No. No. Yeah. <laughs> you got it. <laughs> Um, do you think film adaptations of Shakespeare have had an impact on stage productions? And if so, how? What kind of impact? When a director, a stage director, comes to do a Shakespeare, uh, he or she has almost never seen the other stage productions that have been, you know, significant in the past 20 or 25 years. Uh, because there's no, unless you got a, just a lucky chance to see them in your locale at a time when you were free, but you can revisit films. And so a director who comes to make a stage production of, let's say, Macbeth, has got a whole series of Macbeth films he or she can go look at to try to get ideas or steal things in the way they don't have available to them the last staging of the Royal Shakespeare Company or the last time it was done uh, in Japan. So I think I can trace um, um, liftings. Um, not completely, not the whole deal, but a little, a little detail here and there. And so I like that conversation. After the Much Ado About, Branagh's Much Ado About Nothing, where, as you know, Benedict splashes in a fountain and Beatrice swings in a swing as an expression of their ecstasy once they've opened their hearts to understanding that they each is loved by the other. The next three stage productions of Much Ado About Nothing I saw had either in it a swing, a fountain, both, or finally, at the Royal National Theater, the National Theater in London, a swimming pool. <laughs> so we could do the fountain stuff one better. We could, we could douse them both in the swimming pool. So, yes, they talk to one another. Now that I think about it, the most recent production I saw here in Washington, D.C., it definitely had a fountain. There you are. <laughs> Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. Rebecca, that's, that's just been a great pleasure, and, and good luck. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Sam Crowell is a professor of English at Ohio University. He's also the author of A Norton Guide to Shakespeare on Film, Shakespeare at the Cineplex, and Shakespeare Observed. He was interviewed by Rebecca Shear. See What I See was produced by Richard Paul. Garland Scott is the associate producer. It was edited by Gail Kern-Pastor and Esther Farrington. We had help from Toby Schreiner at public radio station WAMU-FM in Washington and Stephen Skidmore at WOUB Public Radio in Athens, Ohio. Shakespeare Unlimited comes to you from the Folger Shakespeare Library. Home to the world's largest Shakespeare collection, the Folger is dedicated to advancing knowledge and the arts. You can find more about the Folger at our website, folger.edu. 
For the Folger Shakespeare Library, I'm Folger Director Michael Whitmore. 